Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights and this podcast is all about human rights. This episode is about stop and search black and minority ethnic communities and the police, both before and during the coronavirus outbreak. I've got two excellent guests to discuss that. Katrina French, who is the CEO of a brilliant charity called Stopwatch, which campaigns for responsible and accountable policing. Um, and Matthew Ryder QC, who's a barrister at Matrix Chambers and the former Deputy Mayor of London, leading on social integration. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB Law undergraduate course taught in London. Their programme prepares you for the 21st century legal practice and is a great first step to a legal career. This podcast is self-funded. It doesn't quite break even if you want to help keep it going um, so I can discuss interesting human rights issues, then please go to betterhumanpodcast.com. That's betterhumanpodcast.com and consider giving a few pounds a month, which will be a huge help to making it sustainable. Thank you, Katrina and Matthew, for joining me. I really wanted to do this podcast um, to discuss, first of all, the um, the issues arising out of coronavirus, um, and particularly around Stopwatch's work, Katrina. And secondly, after the death of George Floyd, whether you think that is making a difference in the UK, whether there are similarities um, or differences to the position in the UK and what you think is going to happen going forward. Um, so, Katrina, could we start by just talking a bit about what Stopwatch does? Certainly. Thank you for having me, Adam. Um, Stopwatch is a research and action organisation that formed in 2010. And our whole mission is about campaigning for fair and accountable policing, specifically around the use of stop and search. Um, over the last decade, what we've seen is that the rate of ethnic disparity within the police power stop and search has continued to increase. And we believe there's been a weakening of accountability mechanisms, which has left many communities feeling like their voices aren't heard, that they don't receive fair treatment by the police. So our role is to advocate for fairer policing and also ensure that impacted communities have their voices heard and that they're involved in any policy discussions. And when, when you talk about stop and search, can you explain to people um, who who might not know the technical term, like what 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 is stop and search? When do police do it? What do they need to have in place to do it? As in, what 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 do they need to suspect something? How does that all work in practice? Okay, so I suppose stop and search is a policing power that allows officers to allay any any suspicions they have that a person may be carrying a prohibited article. A prohibited article could be a weapon, it could be someone else's bank card if it's stolen, it could be um, uh, illegal substances such as drugs. So there's a wide range of reasons why an officer could stop you. In order to do so, the law says that an officer must have reasonable suspicion. And I think therein is what lies the problem is what some officers believe to be reasonable suspicion others or community members wouldn't see as reasonable suspicion. And the whole, I suppose, premise of this this policing power was to not arrest people on the basis of officers' suspicions, but for, to allow on a, at a street level for those suspicions to be allayed and for the person to go about their business if they didn't have a, a legal article on them. However, what we've seen since this legislation came in in 1986 is that it has been used in a discriminatory manner and it has left communities feeling that they've been stopped and scarred because of statistically about 
at the moment, 75%, in some cases 80%, will stop and searches result in nothing being found. And people feel as though they're being criminalised merely for walking on the streets and usually coming from an ethnic, a black or ethnic um, minority background. So if I can just bring you in, Matthew, you've been involved in some of the big cases around stop and search. And there's a there's a strong theme of human rights um, issues in this area. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I think um, stop and search is the uh, primary interface between which the police engage with members of the public and exercise their powers. Um, apart from when you make a complaint and the police come and, and try and sort out a crime, stop and search is the main way they're going to interact with members of the public. And particularly, it's, it's uh, historically been a primary flashpoint between the black community and policing because it's been the way that the most awkward, difficult and complex relationships between police and the black community have played out. Pretty much every major historical kind of eruption of emotion, uh, anger and uh, serious consequence between police and the black community has in some way been connected to stop and search, uh, apart from probably the Stephen Lawrence case over the last 30 or 40 years. And there are two types, really, of stop and search. There's a stop and search based on reasonable suspicion, which historically has been a way of distancing the stop and search power from the, the more uh, amorphous stop and search powers that existed in the 70s, and which were highly criticised. So that reasonable suspicion stop and search exists. But then there's a stop and search that doesn't require reasonable suspicion and is based simply on the police deciding that in a particular area over a particular time, they should be allowed to make stop and search without any form of reasonable suspicion of the people that they're stopping and searching. And that's newer, uh, it's highly controversial, and it's probably the most dramatic reason why stop and search has increased with the black community in the last five to ten years. And, and that's and that's under Section 60 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act 1994. Yeah, when you hear people talking about a Section 60 stop and search, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about not reasonable suspicion, but a, a, what you'd call suspicionless stop and search. In other words, an authorization over a particular time in a particular area, the police can stop anybody they want without suspicion uh, in order to. Uh, checks for, for certain items or, or to look for certain items they shouldn't have. And it's highly controversial. And, and to use that, they need to, what, what do they, they, they need to believe with good reason that serious violence will take place and it's necessary to use the power to prevent such violence. And, 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 and that, or, or that a person's carrying a danger ob, dangerous object or offensive weapon, and that would disapply, the, it sort of gets rid of the necessity for reasonable suspicion. Yeah, I think when you've explained it like that, it's quite important for the listeners to realise those requirements that you've just outlined are the requirements that a senior officer must meet in order to impose the order on an area. So those are the, the requirements for an order to be imposed. An individual officer then acts within, within the area under that order. So each decision... Within each decision, the, the, each officer doesn't have to always contemplate what is the risk of serious violence within that area at that time. That, that isn't a reasoning process. It's not like a reasonable suspicion stop and search 
where they have to assess each individual stop under quite strict criteria. Once the order is imposed, the reasoning process which the officer has to go through is, is uh, a fairly simple one of deciding that this is an appropriate person to stop within that order. And Katrina, um, you, your organisation has, has been very involved in assessing and, and um, reviewing stop and search over the years, um, and particularly keeping on Section 60 powers, this sort of power to disapply reasonable suspicion in particular areas for particular times. Um, what have you found when analysing it? That actually under a use of a Section 60, the efficacy in terms of the find rate for weapons is according to the statistics published by the Home Office, 2%. And when you carry out a weapon search under PACE, which is the reasonable grounds um, threshold, you're more likely to find weapons. I think the find rate was 14%. So what we see is when officers kind of abandon reasonable suspicion and just willy-nilly go up to anybody and decide that they want to stop them, it's not only going to harm community relationships because people would like to feel that they should be stopped on grounds, you're less likely to find a weapon. So it doesn't feel like it's a win-win. I think last year or the year before in Birmingham, they had a section 60 for the whole of the city. Birmingham has over 1 million residents. It just feels very disproportionate that the police had the power if they felt so, to necessarily stop all of those one million people because they suspected there could be imminent violence. We need to have a proportionate approach to policing, one that's based on evidence. Um, In regards to evidence, we know that the College of Policing and the Home Office have both carried out research and they have found that Section 60 has very little, if any, effect on reducing serious violence. So if we know empirically it doesn't reduce violence and we know that communities are being harmed and that young black men are sometimes up to 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched under this particular power, then we need to question its necessity and whether it's doing far too much harm than good. When you're looking at at stop and search and and the overall uh, numbers of stop and search, uh, I think there's some really important things to understand about how it operates legally and also how it operates politically. Um, So legally, you have what we described as Section 1 Stop and Search, which is Section 1 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. We call it PACE, Section 1 of PACE, which requires stopping and searching on the basis of reasonable grounds for suspicion. Section 1 stops are still by far the larger of the two types. So most stop and search is is done under Section 1 of PACE. And then you have, as we've described, the Section 60 PACE stop and search. And there are, there are two difficulties with those powers that are really common and often get overlooked. The first problem with the Section 1 PACE stop and search is that it can be reasonable grounds for suspicion, for example, of drugs, which could mean cannabis, or it can be reasonable grounds for suspicion to do with firearms or prohibited articles, knife or something like that. And so what's really important to understand is that sometimes when in response to, for example, knife crime, there's a dramatic increase in section one stop and search. When you actually go through the numbers, the reasons the officers are giving for increasing their stop and search is often to do with drug stops. Or when they say these are effective stop and search, it's often to do with finding cannabis or finding some drugs. And so the reality is, is that there is often a disconnection between the reason politicians or police leaders say they want to increase Section 1 stop and search 
in relation to, for example, knife crime. And when those numbers increase, what they actually find and what they're actually being directed at, which is often to do with low-level drug offending. And that's a massive problem, which doesn't often get understood by the public when the police say we've increased Section 1 stop and search. Uh, when it comes to Section 60, what's so dangerous about Section 60 is that for those of us who are old enough, and I'm just about old enough, during the early 80s, there was a notorious power that was called SUS, which was that the police could stop and search somebody not on the basis of any particular offence, just on the basis of a general suspicion. And it was so dangerous, so misused, and so discredited that it was eventually abolished in favour of Police and Criminal Evidence Act powers. Section 60 for many Londoners and many people across the country feels like a return to SUS, because when you're in an area where it's been imposed, and I appreciate that stricter, it's got to be imposed and it's over a particular period of time, it's got to be authorised, but if you're in one of those areas, you're being stopped in circumstances when there's no suspicion against you. And we only have to look back a few decades in our history as a country to reflect on how the use of SUS was so dangerous in terms of community relations, it created the most significant chasms in public disorder that we'd seen at that time um, through the black community feeling completely oppressed by the way they were policed. And if we are drifting towards a return to that kind of stop and search, it's extremely dangerous for community relations and for us as a society. And Section 60 is a real problem in that regard. And the last thing I would say about Section 60 is that what's most troubling about Section 60 is if you think about it logically, it's the only stop and search power that you can turn on and off at will. You can't increase stop and searches with reasonable grounds of suspicion unless you've got some reasonable grounds of suspicion. So if a politician or a police leader says, right, go out and do more stop and search, you can't really increase it hugely if you need reasonable grounds of suspicion to do it. Whereas under Section 60, if someone says go out and do more stop and search, you can just go out and do more stop and search under Section 60. And that means it's much more susceptible to being turned up and turned down on the basis of political and, and other kind of considerations, even if they're un unconscious or even if they're not deliberate. They're m it's much more susceptible to being misused or being put towards a political aim to, to show the public more is being done rather than a targeted approach to addressing a particular problem. And that's one of the other reasons why Section 60 is so dangerous. Katrina, just just as the final question on this on this bit, um, I, I think that this this issue quite often, as Matthew says, um, is in the press is painted as a kind of we need to stop knife knife crime, so let's search lots more people, and and, and you kind of and also there's a lot of statistics as in how many people are being searched, the proportionality, the the effectiveness, all, all comes down to statistics really. But something that I think would be really helpful to hear from you is. You, you must, I presume, as, as part of your work, come into contact with a lot of people who are being stopped and searched. Um, and we talked to, Matthew mentioned community, community relations. I just want to get a snapshot of how does this, on a personal level, affect people and, 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 and the relationship between them and each other, the relationship between them and the police? Ultimately, people 
don't have a sense of belonging in society and in their communities, they feel, and I say they, I speak about the black community because this is where Section 60 is disproportionately used. And as you've said, it's 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 narrative is in, in response to serious youth violence. People feel that they're not involved in crime, but because I live in a, a, a socioeconomic deprived area, there's a lot of police presence or proactive police and I'm seen as a criminal. Um, young black males, and this includes boys, you know, we have 13, 14 year olds being stopped and searched, handcuffed by police in in very demeaning ways. And then they don't feel that they're receiving a service. They feel that they're being oppressed. They don't understand why, because for them, they're not committing crime. And often police officers are not engaging with them respectfully or explaining any of their actions. So it causes a circle of distrust lack of confidence and they feel to be fair that they're continually over policed and un- under protected so when they do have problems they won't go to the police because they don't trust the police and that doesn't mean people turn to street justice it means that lots of things just go unresolved and we have lots of victims who would prefer to not engage with police than potentially be re-victimized so i think the police have to realize that as a public institution They have a vital role to play in ensuring that all communities, black, Asian, ethnic minority, gypsy traveler, white communities receive the same level of service. And that goes with age. You know, just because I'm 15 doesn't mean I should be sworn at and spoken to like I'm something on someone's bottom of their shoe. Young people feel they're not being heard. They're not being respected. And it's not necessarily because of their individual actions. It's because of a a picture that has been painted collectively about young black males and this goes back 40 50 years now it's nothing new so when people do say oh it's about knife crime to be fair i could bring men in their 60s their 50s their 40s their 30s their 20s and their 10s they've all had that negative experience and knife crime wasn't around in the 1960s 70s like that so this is a systemic issue this is an issue that the community has been facing for generations and we're really hoping that this timely moment with all what's happening in the world people will pay attention and finally listen and enact some of the recommendations that have been in reports for the last 40 years one thing that people might want to uh, understand in order to get the scale of it is that when you're looking at a city like london london has around 13 to 14 percent of londoners are black and uh, yet londoners make up sorry, black Londoners make up the majority in numbers, in sheer numbers of people stopped and searched. So of black men, uh, I think there were over 100,000 stop and searches of black men last year versus something in the 80,000s of white men. Now, just to kind of get your head around that, that the, the, in sheer numbers, black people are being stopped and searched more than white people in London just gives you an understanding of how that kind of relationship and interaction with the police starts to become fully ingrained within the relationship between the black community and police and within the culture within which black Londoners and by extension black people in the UK have to live. It's really an unhealthy type of relationship which we need to be moving away from rather than embedding. One other point I think is quite useful to, to understand is that sometimes in the stop and search debate, um, those in positions of, of power will say, 
body-worn cameras are a really important intervention and new development that can really help things. And sometimes they're, they're, they're often described by various people as a game changer. Body-worn cameras are a game changer. And I think that's a really easy thing to misunderstand because body-worn cameras, when they're turned on and when they're being used, will record if a stop and search is being carried out in an inappropriate or aggressive way, if there's violence being used or something like that. And it will help if the person who is then the subject of that unlawful stop and search, uh, excessive violence, makes a complaint. But the vast majority of stop and search problems aren't to do with violence being used. They're to do with the fact that the person should never have been stopped in the first place. And a body-worn camera is very unlikely to pick up the problem of a misuse or an excessive use of stop and search power generally because it's not going to show any great misconduct. And the person who stopped and search isn't going to know that they need to make a complaint isn't necessarily going to make one. And so body-worn cameras are often rolled out as a solution to the problem, when in reality they can deal with some aspects of stop and search, but not with the overall problem of it being excessive. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month, that's just over £2, via our Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. So let's move on to what's happening now um, and particularly I, I just want to talk for a bit about the the lockdown um, because obviously the, the lockdown has hopefully temporarily changed the the legal rights for a start of everybody in the country to move around freely um, and also has given the police a, a quite different role um, a new role a public health role that they they weren't they had didn't have before um, and you know I've been banging on since the the beginning of I guess from from the middle of March since these lockdown laws came in that there's been no all these lockdown laws the the regulations have come in um, without any parliamentary debate or vote um, they, they, they the government has used at every stage an emergency procedure which means that they don't get don't have to be voted in for 28 days at least um, and that's by negative resolution so they can't be amended so it's a kind of you know it's been a it's been a moving um, a very, very fast-moving situation and one which is, is problematic in a number of ways. But just starting with Katrina, um, you've been pivoting, I guess, um, t- towards this this issue and have looked at it quite closely. And what, what have you found, even in the first of three months that it's been going on? Very disappointing in terms of shocked and disappointed at the figures. So we're in the middle of a global pandemic and the police had an opportunity to adopt a public health approach to how they engage with the public. And what we've seen is the skyrocketing of stop and search figures in the last in the last two months. So in April, we had over 33,000 stops and searches carried out in London. In May, that went up to 43,000, which is the highest since January 2012. So very alarmed that police officers are stopping searching, engaging with members of the public without any personal protective equipment. 
and then also fining them when they're unable to give a reasonable excuse for being out. Um, Liberty undertook some research and found that black Asian ethnic minority people were 50% more likely to receive a coronavirus lockdown. Stopwatch has seen key workers, teachers, ambulance drivers, people waiting to, to, for the post office to open, being stopped, interrogated in quite an aggressive manner by the police and being made to feel as though, once again, they're not law-abiding citizens or key workers who have to, they themselves, navigate around the city. So we have seen an increase in calls. We've seen an increase in stop and search. We've had more calls from people saying that the police have drawn a taser on me or have had a taser discharged in this period. And once again, it comes back to when in the middle of a global pandemic and the police rather than gain the trust and confidence of communities that have for decades not trusted them, have chosen to adopt approach, which is enforcement led. And in my opinion, has completely obliterated much of the trust and confidence that was there before. This is, it's so wrong on so many levels. That I'm, it's quite difficult to speak about, to be honest, Adam, because we expected to see a flattening in the curve, some understanding approach and engagement, some compassion and humility. And what we saw was the complete opposite. And I, I just want to sort of dig into that the, the point you make about the difference between public order and a public health approach to policing. And it's something that I've raised a number of times, but your, your organisation is a probably better place than any other organisation to think through the difference between an enforcement approach and a kind of engagement approach, and that, to use the language of the police guidance, what, what do you think it would look like if we're going, for example, if we're going to have another spike in the autumn, which hopefully we won't, but it's pretty likely, how could the how could this be done differently, um, in your view, to to change that approach, change the dynamic? Okay, so at the very least, the police need to be given PPE, at the very least. We understand that COVID has disproportionately impacted BAME communities, and we know that police and disproportionately impacts Bain communities. So just as a starter, let's give them some PPE. Secondary, there needs to be an, a decision made about do we do proactive policing or, or do we do responsive community engaged policing? What I mean is people may want to see police officers present in their community because they want to they may want to feel safe. They might want to have access to a police officer. What they don't want to have are territorial support group vans roaming around their local area where they have officers jumping out and just handcuffing them for, for no reason. So I think there's something around the approach in this time. I don't know if there's been any training undertaken around community engagement during a global pandemic and how to behave in a professional manner and with humiliating compassion. I don't think training is the be all end all, but I think at this point there should be some reflection about what happened regarding drugs legislation. I think if we're in the middle of a global pandemic, people found with cannabis probably should just be given a community resolution on the spot fine, but I don't think they should be taken to a police station and arrested for personal possession. It's further putting them at harm. It's further putting other police officers at harm. So I think we could take a common sense approach to, to drug law enforcement during this time and not have our officers arresting people when they could have you know, told them off on the spot. And more generally, we've seen people's mental health impacted. So maybe partnering with mental health organisations and supporting key workers who have the trust of their clients or other communities 
to do visits or to be more present there. I just think when the police are present, unfortunately, because they are there usually to enforce or to fix something that's gone wrong, it often it often just goes wrong. So identifying key services or key organisations that can support the community and support the police as opposed to the police going and doing these things themselves. I'll give you an example. Police officers were visiting kids who had been truant in, who weren't going to school, there was no school to go to, but they had been not doing their online work. Now, I, I took a bit of an issue with that because I thought it was quite heavy handed that they could have maybe got a school liaison officer, spoken to a local youth community group, but having the police just knock at your door kind of unexpectedly, once again, can cause more turmoil than, than it's worth. So the police have a role to play, don't get me wrong. I just think we shouldn't be leading with enforcement. And if a spike does happen, we need to look at this period very closely and understand how black, Asian, ethnic minorities communities were disproportionately impacted and maybe have some sort of round table where those people that were impacted can can inform the police about what they did wrong because I think part of it is ignorance denial incompetence but if someone tells you what you did wrong and you choose to not listen then for me you're you're purposely making that decision so there maybe is an opportunity for communities to have been impacted but I'll be honest Adam this is nothing new so <sighs> People are sick of talking. They just want action. And the action is that the police carry out the law in a, a lawful manner and proportionately. And under the, the the current way, they haven't done that. So I know it was about a solution, but I was going to say, oh, let the community say, but they're so tired. We just want to be treated fairly and equally. And it shouldn't be so difficult. So yeah, a community, a public health approach for me sees that less of enforcement and more other community groups and voluntary sector organisations, civil society organisations, being able to supplement the police and not lead with enforcement. I just want to pick up on something you said. You said that police have been turning up to houses of children who are not taking part in online education. Yeah, so because they're at-risk kids, we want to make sure they're okay. That's, that's, That's how it's been been framed and obviously we understand the well-being of children we don't want anyone left behind but if those children don't have a good relationship with the police or maybe parents aren't even aware that you're on a let's just say the gangs matrix or some police some police database and you just get somebody rock up on your door you can be quite alarmed and I don't think the police understand how traumatized some people are so when they see the police their heart starts racing they get a bit flustered and they look incredibly nervous and often that's interpreted as being suspicious or being obstinate or uh, obstructive when actually it's a fight or flight response in there and obviously you don't want to fight the police so you're trying to contain everything and that's what we've we've heard has happened which is police officers doing welfare checks basically and I don't think it's the role of the police to do welfare checks I think the schools need to maybe have teachers do a few rounds and go and check on their students, but not just have the police rocking up to your front door. No, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it seems pretty extreme. Matthew, do you want to add anything on, on the coronavirus, um, situ- the situation sort of post lockdown or during the lockdown? Yeah, all, all I would add is that there's a, there's a horrible irony about the situation we're facing on policing and the debate we're having around policing and the coronavirus. Prior to the coronavirus, one of the big discussions that was going on in policing in London and elsewhere was a debate about what was called the public health approach. And 
it was called a public health approach, not because it was actually to do with your physical health, but because it was to do with treating an outbreak of knife crime, for example, as you would treat an outbreak of an epidemic or a disease. In other words, you look at a holistic, multi-agency approach to coping with a kind of problem across a range of communities, as opposed to dealing with this as a, as a strict law enforcement issue. And that's called a public health approach, but it's not actually to do with physical health. The irony is that while we were debating how you do that in the context of something like serious youth violence, we've had the corona outbreak, which is about literally public physical health. And if at any time the police should have had a really good focus on how you police communities in a way that looks holistically across agencies about just keeping people healthy and keeping them physically safe rather than strict law enforcement, now should have been that time. You, you would think it would be fairly easy for the police and every agency involved to say, there's a, there's a genuine public physical health dilemma here. Our only real priority is not law enforcement of people who might be breaching a rule about that. Our real priority should be just keeping everybody healthy. And that would mean non-enforcement, non-criminal sanctions, if that's what's appropriate, just to keep everybody on board, everybody feeling that they're all invested, that they're feeling everybody's working together. And so it is really disappointing that we've ended up having a debate about whether the police have been too heavy-handed on particular sections of the community, once again, the black community in particular. But in reality, this should have been a time when health should have taken precedence over everything else. So I, I think there's a, there's a difficulty and an irony here that... That, I mean, that, I'd never actually considered that point, but I mean, it's it, it's extremely well made because it was at Glasgow that was the sort of um, the example everyone gave of the the public health approach to knife crime, um, and it, it, it there is it's a huge irony that the pub the the famous public health approach has been absent in the public health crisis. And we've still been going, there's still this sort of a, it's this knee jerk. I, I think a lot of the issue with the police was that the knee jerk um, kind of approach w was enforcement because that's kind of what they know how to do. And it's much more difficult to just, just pivot into a public health approach, even to a public health crisis, if you're not institutionally and culturally set up to do that. And that's yeah, the, if we're going to be fair to the police on this, on this, what I would say about that is that, first of all, the Metropolitan Police in particular have been working quite hard with other agencies for, for several years now to try and embed a, a, a public health approach. So it's not as though they haven't been working on that. They have. And to some degree, I think my own view is that the statistics that we've seen put out about the disproportionate uh, level of the prosecution or enforcement against black and minority ethnic communities, but my own view about some of those statistics is that they are not as simple as they appear at first blush. There is some complexity about the statistics. One complexity, for example, is that they, uh, the policing at times uh, doubled up people who were committing offences, other kinds of offences during that time, and added a coronavirus regulation offence to, to that. And so there could be a, a kind of complex set of reasons why 
people who were targeted for other offences ended up also being charged with the coronavirus offence. But putting that to one side, the point holds good. There should have been a powerful sense of leadership at this time saying, this isn't about enforcement. This is about everybody being on board. And this is about putting a priority on working with communities now more than ever. So if we were working on the public health approach, generally, when it comes to serious youth violence, that's quite tricky. In this area, it should be much easier. Our only real interest is making sure everybody stays healthy and everybody stays on board. And we're not really worried about how many people we prosecute for these particular regulation offences. So let's go out there with that agenda. And it just doesn't feel like that's how it's been received by communities, and particularly the black community. It feels as though when you're on the receiving end of whatever move was made, it wasn't a kind of let's all work on this together. But it does feel like we're back to enforcement being a key component in what should have been very much related to health. I would say one other thing on this, Adam, if it helps. On the public health generally, it's a really interesting debate. Um, and Katrina at Stopwatch, you know, various other organisations have all talked about that, particularly a couple of years ago. And I worked on the public health approach when I was a deputy mayor at City Hall. Um, but I wrote quite a long article uh, in, in 2019 about the public health approach. And I think that there were some elements of the public health approach as it was uh, devised in Glasgow or, or uh, developed and, and put out in Glasgow and Chicago and other places, that if you tried to do that in London or another major UK city, you'd be making a lot of mistakes. And there were also aspects of the public health approach, which I think some community groups who are advocating for it don't realise are features of the public health approach that they may not want. And, and just to give you one example, public health approach involves higher levels of enforcement in the police's mind and higher levels of data collection about people who not haven't necessarily committed offences. Those are two things which many communities, particularly the black community in London, isn't very comfortable with. And so we need to have a more sophisticated debate about the public health approach generally rather than simply saying, that sounds great, let's do it. And we transpose what happens in Glasgow, a city of half a million people, into London, a city of eight million people, where the problems and the issues behind the offending are so different. That is, I mean, maybe for another podcast where we could just just look in, in into the, the detail of the public health approach, that would be fascinating. Um, but before we finish, I want to talk about the post-George Floyd world. And... I'm actually amazed to say this. Only a month ago, um, George Floyd was killed. It seems, at least to me, to be much longer than that because of because of all of the all of the um, the, the, the implications and the, and the ramifications that it's had. But on the 25th of May, um, he he died, having had a police officer kneel on his neck for almost nine minutes, and he and he um, suffocated to death. And there was there's just been an, an enormous sort of national response in the united states but also a world response um we've as as much as it's a tragic case we've sort of we've been here before as in we've had many many tragic cases both here and in the united states um starting with katrina do you think that this is has this is this something different about the reaction to this um is it some is it a a sort of a, a point on a continuum do you think there will be any lasting change as a result 
On a surface level, there's been a huge impact by George Floyd's death in terms of people here in the UK realising that disproportionate policing is an issue and that black, Asian and ethnic minority communities have for decades had quite a negative experience at the hands of the police. So yeah, it's been quite amazing to see different sorts of people, groups speaking out about racial injustice and advocating for social justice, particularly some of my white pairs who have been in touch asking what they can do or saying that they hadn't realised it was this bad and commending people like myself for the work that we do in this particular space around racial justice. So yeah, it's had quite a big impact on a surface level. I just hope that we're able to see some fundamental changes and that it's not just rhetoric and people move on to something next week, that actually we have real meaningful reform in policing. And, and Katrina, do you mind me asking what you said to those people who called you? Like what, 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 what were, what practical things are you, have you been suggesting? In response to my white colleagues asking what they can do, I start off with with reading, reading about the issue. So Stopwatch produced The Colour of Injustice, Race, Drugs and Law Enforcement, a report in conjunction with LSE and Release back in 2018. And I think it great provides great insight into the problems around stop and search and is great source of quantitative information. So reading and educating themselves about the issue is great. Also listening to people who have been impacted by policing because for far too long those voices have not been heard or they've been silenced or been minimised because of people's lack of understanding around the issue. So now is a time for my white colleagues, pairs, comrades to listen, to act, to use their agency, their political agency to get behind movements like Stopwatch and support not just with donations but with writing to your MP, coming to events, also engaging with your friends and families around, you know, unacceptable language and conversations. You know, we all have people in our in our social bubble, social circles who say things that are inappropriate. It's on us to correct them, to hold them to account and to explain to them why that just isn't on. And for far too long, many of us have maybe closed our ears or turned a blind eye or walked off when that person started to speak. Now is the time to stand strong and engage with them um, and critically challenge their views um, and educate them about why they're wrong and show them, you know, how they're wrong. So yeah, now is the time to, to listen to those impacted, but also to speak up in spaces where you would have traditionally stayed silent. Matthew, do you want to come in on that? So yeah, I, I really agree with Katrina. And I think there are a few things I would add uh, about how people's perspectives in the world has changed since seeing the kind of horrific killing of, of George Floyd. Um, one of the things that's really important is that lots of people have become very interested in police accountability and have become really focused on this issue. Uh, Katrina and Stopwatch have been doing amazing work on this for a very long time. I think it's probably fair to say that in the range of uh, charities or causes that people would think about giving to, they haven't necessarily featured as one of the key things that people are worried about, particularly people, white people or, or people whose lives aren't particularly affected by police accountability and stop and search. 
And one of the real positives is that for the first time, many people are saying this is a priority for us, not just priority for black people, young black people, priority for us as a whole, for all of us. And that's immensely powerful. And it's seen a lot of people donating, sometimes small donations to Stopwatch and various other really good organizations that help divert people away from uh, negative interaction with the police and also make the police accountable. So I think that's fantastic. And I think we have to stay focused on that issue. The second thing I would say when people say, what should we do? Donate money to those organizations is your primary thing. Donate your resources to those organizations to focus on that problem. Too many people, I think, in this discussion, and Katrina's had people talking to her, I've had lots of people talking to me, asking me, what can we do? Too many people in this discussion uh, sometimes think they've got to solve the problem themselves. If you have an issue in your life about whether you think about this enough or you feel that you might have be, be behaving in a way that doesn't probably take into account institutionalized racism, that, it's great that you're thinking about that, but that's on you. You need to spend your own time with your family, with your friends, with other people, trying to address that in the many ways we've talked about, whether it's on this issue or other issues. And so that's important to address, but that's not what this issue is primarily about. This issue is primarily about trying to make sure another George Floyd doesn't happen, and particularly that a similar th sort of thing doesn't happen in the UK. And if we had a problem to do with, say, I don't know, cancer or some serious illness, people wouldn't be asking, how do I cure cancer myself? What can I do to cure cancer? They would be saying, how do I find an organization that's working to cure cancer and give to them? And we have to take the same approach to this problem. There are professional experts who are trying to solve this, like Katrina, and we need to give them the resources that they can use to solve this problem. I think, finally, I would add that there is a temptation to sometimes perceive the George Floyd situation as being the entirety of the problem. And therefore, unless you have someone being killed, um, it's not really... Uh, something we need to worry about to the same degree. And thankfully, in the UK, we don't have police killing people in, in, in anything like the level that happens in the US. And, and we're all grateful for that. And that's a good part of British culture, that the use of guns and, and other forms of very extreme violence are part of our, our lives in the same way. But we do have the use of tasers. And when they don't kill, they can cause horrendous injury. And we do have other situations where people have violence used on them, which can be extremely traumatizing. And so we shouldn't imagine that just because the numbers aren't there in relation to deaths, that the problem isn't there in the same way. And I'll just leave, illustrate that with this thought. Imagine if George Floyd hadn't died. Imagine if all of that had happened, but he'd survived the knee on his neck. Would your listeners even know his name? Probably not. But that sort of injustice and the need for us to eradicate it would be just as prevalent. The world just wouldn't be mobilized in the same way. I and mean, it shouldn't take a death for us to have to worry about it to the same degree in the UK. We should do it now. I just wanted to finish with two things. First of all, by saying something that came to my mind when, Matthew, when you were sort of pulling together all the different kinds of issues that people should be concerned about. Um, something about the essence of human rights, which is often um, encapsulated in this idea of dignity, that people, people just, people, the, the, for a person to live their life in dignity 
takes an enormous amount of things to go right, if that makes sense. And it's very, it's actually quite easy to undermine someone's dignity, whether by by stopping and searching them um, aggressively or, you know, unjustifiably by creating a sort of an atmosphere of, of persecution that they, that in their everyday lives and in their areas, and then leading all the way up to the, the, the violence and, and even murder that, that we see as well. Um, and I think that you, you really sort of have both put, put, pulled that together, pulled that picture together. Um, Katrina, I, I wanted just to finish with you and ask you, um, we've spoken a lot about donating to Stopwatch. How would somebody listening go about and do that right now? Stopwatch needs all the support it can get. We are a small organisation that is volunteer-led, so we appreciate donations and we appreciate offers of support. So if you're interested in getting behind what we do, please visit our GoFundMe page we have a national campaign for fair and accountable policing that we're fundraising for at the moment we also have our newsletter that comes out every month and it's a roundup of things around disproportionate policing so if you're interested in knowing more you can sign up sign up for that um and in general signpost people who have had negative police encounters specifically around stop and search to us so that they can get the assistance that they deserve and need so those are just some of the ways that um yeah you can support us and follow us on twitter we're on instagram yeah just follow us and share our work in addition to sharing our work or volunteering your time to support us with your expertise or making a donation we'd love to see you at one of our events that is outside of social distancing times um we turned 10 this year and we're hoping to have some sort of celebration and it's also the 35th anniversary of the police and criminal evidence act in 2021 so we're hoping to do a public event around there so there'll be some opportunities for you to come and meet us engage with the people that we support understand our work in a different way but more importantly just become part of the movement thanks so much katrina french and matthew Ryder. thanks a lot adam thanks very much so thank you very much to katrina french from stopwatch and matthew Ryder qc from matrix chambers if you want to find out more about stopwatch or help them out you can go to stop-watch.org the Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new undergraduate course taught in London. Their programme prepares you for 21st century legal practice and is a great first step to a legal career. This podcast is self-funded. It doesn't yet break even. So if you want to support it and make sure it carries on past its first year, you can go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. I'm amazed that 50 people are now supporting the podcast every month. Um, just a few pounds a month would make a huge difference thank you very much to samantha bruff who is the editor and i have been adam wagner this is the better human podcast see you next time